Welcome to the Autism Empowerment Podcast, your source for acceptance, enrichment, inspiration, and empowerment in autistic and autism communities worldwide. Wherever you identify in your autism or autistic journey, Autism Empowerment is here to meet you along the way. We're an autistic-led podcast, 501c3 nonprofit charity, and publisher of Spectrum Life magazine. In today's episode, we'll be moving to part two in our three-part series on autism diagnosis disclosure. In part two, which will be today's show, we're sharing and discussing disclosing a child's autism diagnosis to family members and others in the community. And we're back, moving on to our next episode. Hi there, Karen. Hello, John. How is my partner in podcasting doing today? I'm loving being in the studio with you and helping to spread all this great information out there. Awesome. I love being here with you, too. I also really enjoy sharing and connecting with our listeners, so hello. Whether you're here with us for the first time or you are a returning loyal listener, thank you so much for joining us. My name is Karen Krejci, and I'm the Executive Director and Co-Founder of Autism Empowerment and one of your hosts for today's podcast. I'm here with my husband, John Krejci, who is our Programs Director and other Co-Founder. For more information after the show about our podcast, our organization, and what we do, please visit www. AutismEmpowermentPodcast.org. Hello there to all of our listeners today. Today we are continuing our three-part series on autism diagnosis disclosure. In part one, which was episode number 10, we discussed the important topic of sharing an autism diagnosis with a child, primarily from a parent or caregiver perspective. In our next show, which will be part three, we'll be talking all about adults on the spectrum and when they may want to disclose to others for example, in education, employment, or relationships. Today's show is part two, disclosing a child's autism diagnosis to family members and others in the community. There's a lot we'll cover here, so for now I'm going to turn this over to John, whose primary responsibility will be asking questions and helping monitor our time together. I'm happy to keep us on track and on schedule today because we have a lot to cover. Many of the things that we've covered or will cover are very near and dear to me because I'm a parent to two children on the autism spectrum, and I'm married to a beautiful lady on the autism spectrum. So a lot of this stuff is very close to my heart. Disclosure is such an important thing as well because it's done so many different times. We've been through this process over the past decade So it's an ongoing topic and something that comes up over and over again. So I'm happy that we're going to be covering this topic early in our podcasting, and I know it's going to be another great show, and I hope it'll really have an impact on people out there. I want to ask you, Karen, why are we doing this series, and why is it important to tell certain people? Well, John, we're currently on episode number 11 of the Autism Empowerment Podcast. When we did our last show, I mentioned that In our first few months of shows, we want to include topics that are timeless and that regularly occur within autism and autistic communities. The issue of disclosure, disclosing an autism diagnosis, is one of those topics that everybody with an autism diagnosis is going to have to face at some point and often multiple times. It's a process where you're going to be disclosing multiple times throughout your lifespan and you're going to be asking yourself, who do I tell? What do I say? When? Why? How much? For our parents out there who are listening in today, once your child has a diagnosis of autism, one of your first questions may be, okay, now what? Who do I tell? Do I tell family, neighbors, agencies, providers? Do I tell the general population? 
We can't cover every single family dynamic or personal situation in this show, so what we're going to do today is give an overview, including why to tell, who to tell, some common talking points, some suggestions and examples that you can personalize to your own family's needs. We'll also include a transcript and additional resources in our show notes. As our podcast is part of a nonprofit charity, we provide these shows for informational and inspirational purposes. However, they're not meant to substitute for medical, legal, or professional advice. So Karen, generally speaking, why tell other people? If your child's going to require a level of accommodation or modification, support service, or just patience and understanding in a certain situation, telling somebody else about the diagnosis can often help make this happen and may smooth things out for all people that are involved. There are times when full disclosure is needed. There's times when partial disclosure will suffice. And there's often going to be occasions when you should not disclose at all. As a parent of two children on the autism spectrum and speaking to other parents out there, we've all been or will be at some point in a situation where unexpected or inappropriate behaviors associated with autism will either make other people misunderstand, feel uncomfortable, or even judge us as parents or judge our children. It's not necessary to tell everybody that you meet or know that your child's on the autism spectrum, but if not saying anything is going to put your child in safety danger, in jeopardy of having a meltdown, or might put others at a disadvantage in interacting with your child, it's worth learning how to disclose the diagnosis effectively, proactively, and compassionately to best support your child. So on a very basic level, who should you tell? It's going to be necessary in certain circumstances for your child to be able to get support services related to their diagnosis. So there's going to be some agencies that are going to need to know. There's going to be some professionals who need to know. For example, in each state, there is a developmental disabilities program. That is a state agency that works to support individuals with disabilities. In Washington state, it's called the Developmental Disabilities Administration. In Oregon, it's the Office of Developmental Disability Services. It's something named developmental disabilities in every state. For your child to be able to qualify for certain types of services, they would need to know. And there's a paperwork process you would need to fill out. So in many cases, children who have an autism diagnosis have their health care paid for through Medicaid. If your child or your family qualifies for the Social Security Disability Insurance Program, that's also known as SSDI, those programs can potentially provide assistance to people with disabilities. Early intervention, if your child is receiving services at the birth to three level, so when your child was diagnosed, if they were diagnosed before the age of three, your doctor probably gave you some information that would connect you with your local agency that could help with those things. If your child's going to be needing support services in the school environment, then your schools are going to need to know. For people on the autism spectrum, they often have what is called an individualized education program. For people that are not on the spectrum but have other learning disabilities, this might be called a 504 plan. Other people that might be necessary to know would be providers of medical care. For example, your primary care physician, your pediatrician for your child, dentists, therapists, if they have occupational therapy or speech therapy or physical therapy, potentially a psychologist, perhaps providers that are related to developmental disability services, like someone who might come into your home and do caregiving or respite, and then also people that might come in for other types of home health care needs if your child needs those. 
Additionally, once your child is school age, you're going to want to be able to share some information with that child's teacher or teachers. And if they have an IEP, there will be an individualized education program team. You're going to want to build a positive partnering relationship with your child's teacher, especially because they're going to be the person or persons that work with your child in the school environment the most. So what about family? Do you tell everybody? Do you just tell one or two people? So let's talk about family now. Family is a situation that is very personal. Obviously, the first people you're going to be considering likely are the people who live with you in the household. That could be the siblings of your child, potentially a grandparent if you have multi-generational households, and potentially anybody else that might live in that household. I would also put into this category step family. If you're divorced or if you share custody of your child with anyone else and they have a partner or family member and your child's going to be spending time there, they're going to need to know as well. Extended family is usually a big one that comes up. That would be your parents, potentially your brothers or sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins to the kid. I would even put into this category also really close family friends. We'll be talking about that more in a moment, but I wanted to say first, life is messy. Family dynamics are often messy too. Many of us grew up in dysfunctional families. And so disclosing outside of your immediate family is often sometimes difficult and it's a very personal choice. If you have family members that are going to be spending considerable time with your child, you're going to likely want to disclose because they're going to be spending time with your child and noticing different things. If you have close relationships and you could use the support, those are good people to disclose to. However, if you're estranged, it's really up to you, especially if the safety of your child is involved. It's paramount to consider those things. So say a parent has made the decision to disclose to an adult family member. The most common is obviously the parents or the grandparents of the child. This can cause a lot of anxiety. Can we talk about this for a while and how you might want to share? Absolutely. Since every family dynamic is different, we can't cover every situation. However, let's chat about ways you might open discussion to make the disclosure of the diagnosis more understandable and relevant to your situation. This can also show your child respect. It respects your family member. And it sets a tone for discussion for the future because this isn't going to be likely one conversation that you're having. It's likely not going to be two conversations you're having. This is a topic that's going to be coming up multiple times over your child's lifespan. If we can set a tone early on that's compassionate and informative, it can lead to better conversations down the road. So here's a good jumping off point. Using behaviors that extended family members may have noticed or will be likely to notice is one way to start explaining what autism is as it pertains to your child and why your child may have been diagnosed. If they understand already that it's something different about your child and that their behavior isn't intentional, it can be a starting place for a bigger discussion about what autism is. So Karen, do you have any examples for the listeners? Yes. So for example... If your child doesn't make eye contact, and this is a common one, right? Very common. If your child doesn't make eye contact and has a hard time connecting with other kids or other people, a lot of times others may mistakenly assume that the child is just shy. In some cases, they might think that the child is disrespectful or rude. They might think it's a respect issue, especially with older generations. But those are symptoms of the child's autistic neurology. 
Likewise, if your child melts down when visiting family, that might be because they have a very hard time handling changes in routine, or they might be overwhelmed by certain sounds or noises or different smells like perhaps grandma's perfume. Those are other things that are very common for autistic children. As you like to say sometimes, all behavior is a form of communication. All behavior is a form of communication. And I like to say, too, that we can play brain detectives. (laughs) We put on our Nancy Drew or Hardy Boys hat and try to figure out what that behavior is telling us and why. Absolutely. When talking about some of the things that relate to the autism diagnosis, some of the hallmarks of the diagnosis are difficulty with social skills and restricted or repetitive behaviors. But coming out and just saying it that way doesn't really provide much context. So putting it in a way that they're going to understand and meaningful for them is going to be helpful. So as far as difficulty with social skills, you might want to say that your child may not respond right away to social pleasantries. For example, if you say hi to them, they may not say hi back. Or if you try to run up and give them a big hug, they may not like to be touched. Or conversely, they might like the big hugs. I know this one girl in our community who just loves to give hugs. Absolutely. It's going to be different for every child, but that's one way to be able to explain it depending upon your child. You might say that they have challenges understanding how to behave in different social situations and that we can help them with that. This is quite common too, especially when the kids are younger, that they might have some challenges with speech. Maybe they don't yet speak. They may use a device or sign language or different ways to communicate, but they may also have some challenges with nonverbal communication. That might be reading other people's facial expressions or their own facial expressions really may not match what they're feeling. That also goes in with eye contact as well. To describe the restricted or repetitive behaviors and interests, some examples of this would be depending upon what your child's routines and rituals are, but a very common one would be having a restricted diet, where if you're going over to grandparents' house, your child may like to eat the same things, the same types of food, texture, taste, and having that special food available for them would be a great way to support your child. It's also a good way to let them know that if your child doesn't like grandma's favorite zucchini bread, that it isn't personal. You don't want to hurt her feelings, but your child just has specific things that they like to eat. And they may actually be on a restrictive diet for health reasons. That's a very good point because some of our kids have some gut issues and some of our kids need to be gluten-free or dairy-free. And so that's a really good point there as well. Other things they may notice, our children may flap their hands, they may rock back and forth, they may spin in circles, they could walk on their toes, and there's no shame in those behaviors. They're things that are a little bit noticeable, but explaining that these are things that they may see are going to be able to help them understand and to say that your child does that when they're excited or maybe they're sad, sometimes when they're anxious, or maybe it's just a way for them to regulate themselves. These are all reasons that these kinds of behaviors may be happening. There may be some repetitive behavior that they do that could be a little distracting or annoying, like turning lights on and off. I remember when our youngest went over and visited their grandparents, he had a tendency to slam all the doors. And that <laughs> that could be very abrupt and frightening. Yeah, and I remember our oldest, one Halloween, we'd go around the neighborhood, and it was fairly warm out being California, Some of the doors were open. What he would do, he'd go up to the door, 
And he would close it first because that's not proper. You need to knock on a closed door and let them come into the door first. Our kids can be very good rules followers, which can be an awesome thing, but it might throw one off (laughs) in that particular case. Why this little kid was closing her door. (laughs) No trick or treat for you. (laughs) (laughs) One great explanation that allows the family member to be able to come into your child's world is to explain that they're going to be having some passionate or intense interests. They're going to likely have a favorite topic they're going to want to talk about or hear about or learn about. It might be a movie. It might be a song. It might be a Disney character. You might be talking about cars or trains or animals. Those are also awesome opportunities for you to bond with that child. And you may actually get to learn a whole bunch of things about subjects you didn't know about. Oh, absolutely. That's a guarantee. How will the disclosure of the diagnosis to other people help your child? People often worry that having a diagnosis is going to negatively label a child, that people will think that they're weird or hurting their opportunities or maybe even affecting their self-esteem. Although it's true that there are people out there that are not very kind and accepting, for the most part, the opposite is true. Most people really do mean well and are supportive. Just like in our last episode, we talked about the importance of disclosing an autism diagnosis to a child. Disclosing the diagnosis to others provides information. It provides information to be able to help support the person. It shows respect to your child and also to the person that you're disclosing to. It can really be a relief to know that a child's challenges, as well as their strengths, are attributed to something. And actually, autism is fairly common and not that unusual. Having a diagnosis also means that the family is eligible for therapies and services, both medically and through school, which may provide additional strategies, tools, and support. Particularly when a child is diagnosed at a younger age, early intervention services often prove helpful. So having that diagnosis is important, and being able to disclose that to others ties along with making sure your child gets support. Although autism is a lifelong condition, children with a diagnosis will grow, learn, and develop as they get older. Their characteristics and behaviors will change throughout their life. Life circumstances and life stages, as well as therapy and support, can make a big difference. And with ongoing support, people on the autism spectrum can learn to work to their strengths. They can get around their difficulties and work on their challenges, and they can use their interests and abilities in productive ways. It's really good for them just to have allies out there. Oh, it's so important to have allies. I think it's also important to point out that many people on the autism spectrum will require support throughout their lives. It's impossible to tell when a child is very young what level of support that will be, which is why making sure that we support the child as early as possible is a great thing. With or without structured support programs, people on the autism spectrum, when they have allies and loved ones around them, They can live wonderful, meaningful, and fulfilling lives. That's for sure. I liked what you said about having the information, because information is power. On the basis of information, you, you may get a lot of questions over the course of the disclosure. So I think one of the questions that comes up quite a bit is a touchy topic, but I wanted you to touch base with it. What causes autism? Can we talk about that briefly? 
And it doesn't really have to be a touchy topic. I think it has been because in the past, there's been a lot of gloom and doom and negativity associated with having an autism diagnosis. But autism is not a bad word. Absolutely not. Being autistic is not a bad thing. It's a natural question, though, to ask what causes it. So it's better that a person asks you and you have something positive to say rather than that family member or that friend spending hours on the Internet (laughs) going down some sort of rabbit hole. Or conspiracy theory. Yeah, yeah. You don't really need to get into the weeds and give them a thesis or a dissertation, but you should cover a few things. And one of those is that autism is a neurodevelopmental disability. We know that there's no one cause of autism, but research suggests that autism develops from a combination of both genetic and non-genetic or environmental influences. Research suggests that it may happen in utero, which means before birth, and that it's not caused by vaccines. Autism is lifelong, and behaviors and skills may change and develop over time. It's not caused by bad parenting. It's also important to point out, and this isn't really cause, but it ties along with it. Your child may not fit someone else's image of what autism looks like. There's a saying in the autism community, if you've been around long enough or if you listen to enough of our podcasts, you'll hear it. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) If you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism, which was coined by Dr. Stephen Shore. What that means is that just because one child with autism looks and sounds one way doesn't mean that another child will. It would be helpful to explain that autism is a spectrum of behaviors, and every autistic person is different in terms of onset, severity, and types of symptoms. For instance, some children and adults are mostly nonverbal, but there are others that are hyperverbal. They may talk your ear off, but it's possible in doing so even if they have large, intense vocabularies, that they may not engage in back-and-forth conversation very well. Just as a point, even if they're nonverbal, doesn't mean that they're not picking up what a person is saying. It just means that they're, for some reason, can't communicate through voice. That's true. It's important to presume competence and to understand that everybody can learn and that everybody may be listening. So be careful with what you say. Also, I wanted to make one other quick point, if you don't mind. I think it's really hard because when you have these conversations also, people that you're having the conversations with may have some predisposition about what autism is from the media or from popular culture. That's a really good point. We can't control what another person's life experience is and what their information is, but you can control the narrative about your child and explaining how autism is affecting them and how it's affecting you as well. I do want to make a special note too. A lot of times the popular media can be very triggering to people. They see a show like Rain Man or recently see as music. There's all sorts of different discussion around these types of things. But I tend to try to focus conversation back to the person that's in front of you that's on the spectrum and how things relate for their particular situation. In order for us to promote really good autism acceptance and outreach, We need to be able to do so in ways that are meaningful and have context to the people that are around us so that they can understand. So I do want to make a note with the hereditary part. If you're talking about genetics, autism does tend to run in families. So this may cause other family members to take a second look at their own families. In fact, a lot of times 
people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, they don't get diagnosed on the spectrum themselves until their kids are diagnosed. And in that process, people begin to look at their family trees and think, hmm, is grandma on the spectrum? Is grandpa on the spectrum? That uncle, you know? That quirky uncle or aunt. Exactly. I think a lot of times people actually do find quite a few people in their family tree who probably could have been diagnosed had that been available to them at the time. And it's not something you necessarily want to suggest, especially when you're first talking about autism. It's not necessarily a good first conversation starter. But just be aware that this kind of thing might happen. And actually, it could be really great, awesome information to help empower someone to better understand why they've always felt different. But just keep in mind that may happen when the conversation comes up about what causes autism. Thank you for that. So next, what are some of the initial reactions you might encounter? Family member reactions are as diverse as the family members themselves. So they can have a wide range of different reactions. Sometimes it's a relief because there's an explanation for things that they may be seeing that are challenging. But then again, relatives might feel sad or overwhelmed. That's very common, and it's normal to experience a range of emotions. When you found out your child was diagnosed, you may have experienced a range of emotions. And that is one of those things that changes over time and tends to run in cycles. In fact, there's something called the autism grief cycle, which we'll talk about in another show, but it talks about different stages of coming to terms with an autism diagnosis. Some of the initial feelings that people have may not be ideal for you to hear. In fact, you could end up feeling very hurt or isolated. People might reject the diagnosis. So initially receiving a diagnosis for your child is a very big event. Sometimes it challenges people's perceptions of what they envision parenthood to be. And that is also true for grandparents. So what might be some of the difficult reactions that you might expect to see as well? We mentioned this not to get you into a frame of mind of fear, but to say these things happen. They are fairly common and fairly natural, and oftentimes people need time to process things. It's better for someone to be human and honest in their responses and to be able to evolve and grow from it than to keep it in. So some of the common reactions that people may initially have or think about, they might be angry. They might think it's not fair. My grandchild or loved one didn't deserve this. It's very common to feel confusion or overwhelm, especially when you're giving them a whole lot of new information. What parent wasn't overwhelmed when they tried to research this kind of stuff on the internet, right? Absolutely. Denial. This can't be happening to my family. I'm just going to pretend it didn't exist. Disappointment. Will I be able to have a good relationship with my grandchild? Are we going to be able to do the fun things that I was hoping to be able to do with them? Fear is very common. They might be worried what's going to happen to your child. Is there going to be someone to take care of them when they're older? Will they have the supports that they need? When it comes to that genetic thing, they may be feeling guilt. Even though they can't control their genes, they might think that they did something to somehow cause it. That might also lead to a sense of powerlessness. They want to change some of the difficult things happening to their family, but they can't. As mentioned before, there is relief. At least they now know why their grandchild might be acting differently. But then there could also be rejection. This isn't autism. I know what autism is. This isn't it. 
there's nothing wrong with my kid. It's just parenting. It's just whatever. They just need some type of discipline. Yeah. And those types of reactions can be some of the most difficult and devastating. Sadness, that kind of went along with disappointment. They could just be sad that your child is going to be going through struggles and hoping that they don't have to go through those struggles. Who wants their kid, no matter what neurology your child has, to go through struggles? Absolutely. They don't want anyone to go through finally, one other common reaction could be shame and then embarrassment that they feel shame. They might be wondering what other people think. And that can tie into place culturally. That can tie into place with socioeconomic status. Those are all fairly common natural human reactions. Oftentimes, relatives, like parents, like you, they need that extra time to be able to put pieces together. Frustration, confusion, and anger, those things aren't uncommon. They just need some time to be able to process things. You want to be able to give them that time. You want to let your family members express their feelings, but you also want to set up an opportunity for hope. Tell them that you're working with a team of providers, if that's the case, and that you're trying to set up family members and allies around your child The reason you're disclosing the diagnosis to them is because you value them and want them to have a positive and loving relationship with your child. You can also say that they're important to you and to your child, so you hope that they'll be supportive. Eventually, just as most parents do as they work through things, they can move on to accept, embrace, and help empower your child. Remember, your child was the same wonderful person as they were the day before they were diagnosed. All the wonderful qualities they already had, they still have. And as they grow and they learn more, you're going to find all sorts of interesting, unique things about your child, which you can celebrate and embrace. Thank you so much for that. I want to move on to disclosure of the diagnosis to other siblings, if they have them. We're not going to do a whole lot on this because that could be another show. Type of disclosure depends on the age of a child and their developmental level. But it is important that a child's brothers or sisters are brought into the conversation because they're going to be living with your child and they're going to be an ally for that child. And they're also going to have their own questions and concerns. Siblings need communication that's open, honest, developmentally appropriate and ongoing. They need this because otherwise they're going to become anxious from lack of information. Without information about the disability, younger children may worry. They might think it's contagious and that they can catch it. So you want to let them know it's not contagious. You want to let them know different things based upon their age and ability level. Things like it's a difference in the brain. It occurs before birth or when they're a baby. It causes differences with talking or playing and understanding other people's feelings. You can let them know how they might be able to best help, for example, by playing with them and showing them how to do things. You want them to know that their brother or sister may need some extra supports with learning, maybe with speech, or they may be going to different types of therapies to help them become stronger in a certain area. The siblings need to know, though, that you're going to be there for them and love them. Oftentimes, children with an autism diagnosis or children with a disability in general seem to get more attention. But as long as all your children know that you love them and that you care for them and you're there for them individually and uniquely, that's going to be important for their safety and their mental health. 
You can talk in terms of concrete examples of differences. We talked a little bit about that in our previous show. We used an example where mommy needs glasses to see, but daddy doesn't wear glasses. Or your brother likes to learn about airplanes and you like to learn about horses. Just remember that younger children may only be able to understand specific traits that they can see. So seeing that their brother or sister may not talk or likes to line up their cars, you want to tell things to them in relation to what they can see and that they can understand. Older siblings may require more information, particularly if their brother or sister is going to be in the same school with them. Teens might be anxious about their brother or sister's future and eventually the responsibility of who might take care of them if that's something that needs to be in the conversation. Just remember that all of your children need parental attention that's consistent, individualized, and celebrates their uniqueness. We'll include some resources in the show notes. One of those would be the website siblingsupport.org, and we'll include a link to a handout called 12 Important Needs of Siblings and Tips to Address These Needs. So a good question, what if a family member comes to you and says, how can they help? How can I be an ally? That's a great thing if they come to you and ask how they can help, right? Take the help if you can. I think that one of the most important things that we can share with people who ask how they can help is that they can show love and respect for your child, that they can be an ally for that child throughout that child's lifespan. That also includes love and respect for you, friendship to you. If it's possible, it would be really awesome sometimes if they could provide caregiving and respite so that you and your spouse potentially or you and maybe some of your other children can have a little getaway together, that kind of thing. A little bit of time that where you're able to spend special time with each child or you and your spouse are able to spend some time together. Caregiving and respite breaks are often quite valuable. Very valuable. Education. Patience and understanding. Those are great ways that people can help. If you give them an article that they read it. Maybe you could share Spectrum Life magazine with them, reading articles. That's a really good point. Spectrum Life magazine, for those who may not be familiar, is the nonprofit publication that Autism Empowerment produces to help educate individuals on the spectrum as well as family members and friends and allies about how to best support people throughout their autism journey. If you live in the Southwest Washington or Portland, Oregon metro area, you may be able to pick up the magazine for free. Otherwise, it's $20 if you want to have the magazine mailed to you or to a family member. And of course, we want it to be accessible to everybody, so it's always available online for free. That includes all current and past issues. So that's a great way that they can educate themselves and to learn. Other ways that they might be able to help would be, and this often comes into play with parents, might be financial support if they're able Perhaps that might be for something like therapy or for summer camp or specialized equipment. Right. One of the other great ways that they can help, and this is going to build bonding relationships, is to share in your child's favorite toys, their favorite characters, their favorite interests, videos, songs, play games with them using those things or crafts or art genuinely listen to them talk about their passions or their special interests. If you find out that they're really into astronomy, getting them a gift that has to do with something that's really interesting to them. Those are really great ways to show that person 
that you respect them and that you're genuinely interested in their happiness. Then finally, you know what your own situation is. If there is something else where a family member might be able to help, maybe it's cooking you an awesome meal or maybe it's doing a shopping run. There just may be something that might be helpful for you. If they ask and they're capable and you trust them and it feels right, go ahead and and take the support. But I think that the biggest things have to do with the love and respect for your child and also education because it's awesome if they're an ally for your child and for your family, but it's even better if they're an ally for all of the autism community because your child's going to grow up and the more allies that they can have within the greater society at large, the better. Some of the greatest allies that hopefully they'll have over their lifetime are teachers and medical providers. I know earlier in the show, we talked about them a little bit. And can we talk about that briefly, especially about confidentiality? Teachers and medical providers are going to be people that are going to be having some sort of relationship with your child to be able to help them learn or to help take care of their medical care. And when it comes to confidentiality, there are certain practices that they have to follow. We're not going to go into incredible detail on this, but I want to give you a couple terms that you're going to hear and that you want to make note of. And then we will include more information about that in the show notes. The first one has to do with medical, and that's HIPAA, H-I-P-A-A. It's an acronym that stands for the Health Information Portability and Protection Act. What that is, is a protective act designed to make sure that a patient's healthcare information is only accessed and shared with your permission. So if you have authority to make healthcare decisions for your minor child, you're probably going to be that person's personal representative. And you can exercise HIPAA rights with respect to your child's protected information. So essentially what that means is they're not going to be able to share certain types of information to other people without permission. That applies to the vast majority of healthcare providers out there. If you think HIPAA, H, healthcare. But when it comes to schools, there is another type of act or law, and that's called FERPA. The Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, FERPA, is a federal privacy law that gives parents certain protections with regard to their child's education records, such as report cards or transcripts, IEPs, disciplinary records, contact, family information, and class schedules. What that might mean to you practically is in the school system, if something happened between your child and another child, even if it had to do with autism-related behavior, the school would not be able to disclose your child's diagnosis to another family. We'll give more information about that in the show notes. When it comes to building relationships with teachers and helping your child navigate through the school system, that's an ongoing thing. We have a lot of information for that on our spectrumlife.org website. We're not going to be covering that today, but again, we'll give some information on that in the show notes. So with FERPA... Your child's teacher isn't going to be able to disclose your child's diagnosis to other people in the classroom. But there may be times when you might want the classmates to know, and it's a real personal decision. But particularly if your child's more severely affected and is going to be in a mainstream classroom and they're practicing inclusion, sometimes there are good reasons to let classmates know about some of the differences your child experiences. There may already be modules or programs that your school has to be able to promote inclusion in the classroom. So you may want to check with your child's teacher to see if it might be possible to do a passive disclosure about differences in different children without naming any particular student. So that could be useful as well. 
I could see how that would be very useful. So I want to shift the focus a little bit to the community. What does disclosure look like out in the community? Before we get into the specifics of that, let me put community disclosure into context of this show because we have covered an awful lot of topics so far. In the beginning of the show, we said that there's times when full disclosure is needed, like with agencies and professional providers. Right. There's times when partial disclosure will suffice. And then there's some occasions when you should not disclose at all. It's not necessary. When we talk about disclosure out in the community, we're not referencing family. We're not referencing professional providers. We're not even talking about close family friends. What we're talking about is people that you and your child may come across through the course of daily living activities. This might include neighbors. It could be the checker at the grocery store. It could be the ride attendant at the amusement park or other people you encounter that are either not close or maybe strangers. I know that there's three different types of disclosure, passive, reactive, and active. What I'd like to do is go over each one of those And so let's talk about passive disclosure first. Passive disclosure is a technique that compensates for the fact that autism is often a hidden or invisible disability. In other words, you may not be able to tell by looking at a child or looking at an adult that they're autistic or that they have any kind of disability at all. I use the word passive because you don't directly approach someone regarding your child's diagnosis but you still communicate that there may be differences in interactions. So for example, you may use visual supports and strategies when you're out with your child in the community. These might be the same ones you use at home, whether it be a visual schedule or sign language or producing fidgets, these actions can help people around you realize that your child may be processing the world differently and prepare them should your child do something unexpected. When our kids were young, some of the examples that we used were noise-canceling headphones, jewelry, which is chewable jewelry. And because one of our children had a tendency to bolt or wander away, we had what was called a doggy backpack, which was a cute little harness, which made sure that our child wasn't going to run away, that we would be able to keep him safe. So I have a question for you. There's an organization out there called Culture City that provides sensory kits for a lot of types of amusement parks and venues. Part of the kit is a badge that the child wears. It's just like a symbol. So people within the venue can identify the person very quickly. Would that be something passive? Yes, those would be examples of passive disclosures. Those kinds of things are really handy when you're in public or you're with a group of people that might benefit from knowing that your child has some differences It's great that you mentioned Culture City because that kind of kit can really be a great accommodation for helping your child in places like amusement parks or zoos or stadiums, places that are oftentimes very crowded and with large noise. Other places where you may want to be thinking about having things to passively disclose might be restaurants or playgrounds, out when you're shopping, or if you're going to be traveling like at the airport or on a flight. Some families will choose to have autism clothing, which would mean, for example, a T-shirt that might have a message about autism, either a parent wearing it or maybe their child wearing it. They may have a bumper sticker on their car, something along those lines. You have to be kind of careful about these types of things. 
If you're taking pictures or things are going to be posted, remember that anything that shows up on social media will live there forever. Remember that as your child gets older, they may not want to have the fact that they're autistic be actively disclosed or passively disclosed. So keep those things in mind as well. One other example of passive disclosure that I saw when I was at an Autism Society conference was the idea to create a little business card or leave behind some sort of note with helpful hints about autism. That might be something as a leave behind if you are in a particular situation or you want to hand something to somebody but not make a big scene. So what about reactive disclosure? Reactive disclosure happens when you thought you could get by without disclosing or you were hoping that the passive disclosure strategies were going to be useful, but something unusual or inappropriate happened that required some sort of additional understanding or explanation or possibly an accommodation. For example, inappropriate behavior by your child at either a playground or restaurant. If you notice that your child goes up to somebody else's table, grabs food off the table, and runs off, that would be an example of that. That would be shocking, actually. (laughs) That would be shocking and embarrassing, but certainly something that could happen and certainly would require some sort of explanation. So I have a question. So what if your child, you're sitting in the balcony at a church, and your child takes off, runs down one side of the church, runs in front of the church, and then up the stairs on the other side? Would that be considered reactive? That would be an example of our youngest when he was three. (laughs) (laughs) That was difficult. Yeah, that would be a situation where obviously we just didn't get in front of the whole congregation and announce, our child has autism. (laughs) Our child's autistic. No, that's, yeah, yeah. There's going to be certain types of situations that you're just going to be oops, sorry. And that may be all you need to say. Sometimes you need to say a little bit more. Sometimes you need an apology. But let's get real here for a moment. Our kids can sometimes do things which might be a bit embarrassing or that it takes a while for us or others to get used to. But we do not need to apologize for their existence. We do not need to apologize for the essence of who they are. We do not need to apologize for everything they do. If they're incredibly rude and they do something that needs apology, yes. If they do something incredibly inappropriate that needs an apology, yes. But an example of something that wouldn't need an apology is when our children use different self-stimulatory behaviors, stimming, regulating themselves, either to show excitement, to relieve their anxiety, to maybe regulate themselves. A lot of our kids on the spectrum may do behaviors that other people might see as unusual, like flapping their hands or rocking back and forth or jumping up and down or making vocal noises. These things may cause other people to stare and to look, but it isn't something you need to apologize for because your child is your child. Most people are going to be kind. There may be situations where you may want to explain something if you feel comfortable and the time is right. But there's going to be some people out there that may be rude or ignorant. But remember, no matter what it is that you choose to do in that situation, your child is going to be there and very likely going to be listening to you. They don't want you to feel ashamed of them. And they may internalize if you're using their autism as an excuse and not a reason for some of their behaviors. They may internalize that there's something negative about them. So Don't feel the need to apologize for every situation. 
However, if you do need to disclose things when your child does something that might be a tad embarrassing, like disrupting a Christmas program by running up and down the stairs, then do so. I think we only had one person come up to us after that. Again, be careful with what you say. You want to promote inclusion and acceptance. Autism in this context can be used as a reason for behavior, but not an excuse to be naughty. Our children may sometimes have impulsivity issues. They may have challenges understanding social situations, explaining things in context to those situations. So last but not least, let's move on to active. Active disclosure is when verbally or in writing, you tell someone about your child's diagnosis to either secure an accommodation or you're looking for patience or understanding in a given situation. The key with more active disclosure is to do it ahead of time whenever possible and to highlight just how autism is going to affect your child's behavior or participation in a specific setting or situation. It's also important to note accommodations that would help your child be more successful in that situation. So do you have some examples for us? I do. Excellent. Now, none of these examples are going to be giving long explanations about what autism is. Essentially, what they're going to do is identify what your child's needs are as they relate to autism and the particular situation. So the first example would be a child participating in story time at the local library. This might be something that you would say to the local librarian. My child loves hearing stories and being around other children, but I wanted you to know that my child's autistic. I will bring a mat to help her know where to sit, and she'll be holding a fidget to help her focus. She may get up to move around. Just know that she's not intentionally being rude, and she'll still be enjoying the story time even if she doesn't seem to be paying attention. I'll be present to support her as well. Thank you so much for your understanding. Another example might be out at the community pool with lifeguards. Well, our kids love the water. Our kids do love the water, and that can be a safety concern, but also a lot of them are really good swimmers, so it's important to explain context, right? Absolutely. For example, you might want to say, I wanted to let you know that our son is autistic. He really loves the pool and is a good swimmer, but occasionally you might find him excited, and he might try to skip or lightly run around the edge of the pool, flapping his hands. The flapping's okay, as he does it when he's excited and he does it to regulate himself, but we recognize that the running's not appropriate. If the lifeguards see him start to run, it would be helpful if they would first say his name and then say, walk please, to get him to stop. He does better when told what to do rather than what not to do. Oh, I see the nuance there. The idea with these is to give them information about your child and specific behaviors that they may have that might be noticeable, ways that they might be able to support that child either directly or indirectly, and showing them also that you're an active, involved parent that's partnering with them, right? You're not giving your child excuses. You're giving them support and accommodations. Do you have any other examples? We'll do two more. Dining out is a common one. So oftentimes restaurants can be very overwhelming for children. It can be very noisy. There's smells, all sorts of different sensory things. So oftentimes it can be really helpful when you get there to ask, could we be seated in a booth near the edge of the seating area? Our daughter has autism and it's quieter for her to be on the edges of the restaurant. Also, could you let our waiter or waitress know that we'd like her food to be brought out as soon as possible? 
that's important because sometimes restaurants will give you a leisurely dining experience unless you let them know otherwise. If you already know that your child may be sensory overwhelmed, you may not want to go there during the busiest time to begin with. The last example I'll give is attending a specialized camp. So oftentimes we can choose summer camps or winter break camps or interest camps for our kids. This is an example there. I've registered my son for Lego camp and I wanted you to know he's autistic. My son might not look at you when you're giving instructions or when addressed by a peer, but he is listening. It would be helpful for him to see a written or visual schedule for the day so he knows what's expected of him, what time lunch is, etc. I can provide a dry erase board for this purpose. He's used to that strategy. He may also need extra time to complete a project and is happy to work alone. He's a really awesome kid. We hope you enjoy him. Hey, I want to go to Lego camp. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So that was a ton of information today. Again, another wonderful and great show. It's on a very important topic. So I want to thank you, Karen, for sitting with us for this show. You did an amazing job. Before I turn this back over to you to close us out for the day, I want to thank all of our listeners for listening to us today and subscribing to this podcast. So thank you, Karen. And I'm handing it back off to you to take us off the air. Thank you so much, John. I really appreciate you co-hosting this with me today. In terms of final thoughts, I'd like to say this. In most cases, disclosure is about your autistic child being successful, respected, and accepted in whatever environment they're in. Disclosure, when done in a positive and meaningful way, helps to ensure that your child has their needs met by others. It can also facilitate a positive attitude toward autism on the part of others and promote autism acceptance. When our extended families, our friends, our neighbors, and those in our community have positive, successful interactions with our children on the autism spectrum, we help to support a positive future for them that includes and involves increased inclusion and opportunities. Our children on the spectrum are going to grow up into adults on the spectrum. The more that we can do to positively support their inclusion, independence, and acceptance in society, the better for all. We appreciate you hanging out with us and thank you for your time. You've been listening to the Autism Empowerment Podcast. If you'd like to get connected with our community, as well as all the great support and content we have planned for the future, please hit the subscribe button and visit www.autismempowermentpodcast.org for show notes, transcripts, social media details, Spectrum Life magazine, and more. We provide these shows for informational and inspirational purposes. However, they're not meant to substitute for medical, legal, or professional advice. As a 501c3 nonprofit charity, we rely upon support from listeners like you to produce our podcast and other programs. We appreciate you leaving us a positive review, sharing our show, and considering a tax-deductible donation today. Thank you again.